What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Hedging Screens podcast. As always, I'm your host, Zach Cronin. and I hope everybody is doing well mentally, physically, and emotionally. Um, I hope that everybody is excited for the football season that kicks off on Thursday. I'm only excited about it because I had my fantasy draft this past Sunday with all of my hometown friends, and I'm excited. I think I picked the best team. I think that I should be the favorite to go on and repeat as champion. I think I'm projected to be the best team in the league and finish like 12-2 and or something like that. Maybe I'll show off my team towards the end of this episode, but otherwise, I'm just here. I'm chilling. I'm waiting for the NBA season to begin. Of course, I'm on countdown. We're down to like, what is it, a little bit more than a month or so until um, opening night, I believe October 18th or somewhere around that, the third week in October. But because of that, there really hasn't been a lot going on in the NBA front. Of course, I am going to address the elephant in the room, which is Donovan Mitchell being traded to the Cleveland Cavaliers. But there's been some shit going on with Eurobasket. A whole lot of dominance from Mr. Giannis Antetokounmpo. Um, I know that's where Danilo Gallinari got hurt as well. He tore his ACL while playing for the Italian national team. Of course, unfortunately, there was that news that Furkan Korkmaz... The um, I guess he's a guard, guard forward for the Turkish national team, got attacked by a bunch of players on the Georgia team, which super fucked up. Of course, don't condone any of that behavior at all. But otherwise, it's been it's been pretty quiet on the news front. Of course, outside of Donovan Mitchell being traded to the Cleveland Cavaliers, a move that I don't think anybody foresaw. Um, it me. Me personally, I felt that it was either the Knicks or bust. I remember when I did, when I looked over the NBA um, offseason survey that ESPN ran, I looked over that last week, and one of the questions posited was, where does Donovan Mitchell end up after the trade? I think it was after the trade deadline, or what team is Donovan Mitchell on after the trade deadline? And I believe it was 14-1 to New York. 14 of the 15 people polled predicted him to be traded to New York. I did as well. I thought that it was either New York or nothing. And very clearly, Danny Ainge and the Utah Jazz had a different idea. And this deal is... uh, Some people are being very charitable to Danny Ainge and saying that, you know, this deal isn't as bad as some people may think it is. Of course, when you have those two extremes, some people saying that Danny Ainge is literally the worst GM that has ever existed. He got absolutely fucking fleeced. L plus ratio plus RIP Bozo, all that shit. And of course, there are also people saying like, oh, you know, it's not that bad. Fortunately, I didn't see anyone saying that the Jazz won the trade, but we're going to go ahead and we're going to get right into it. We're going to listen to our favorite NBA reporter, Mr. Which bombs Wolch. are these? Because it comes out of nowhere for all of us. I'm just curious. Curious, Adrian Wojnarowski joining us, who broke this news. Are these the most fun to hit send on? Because you know that you, like, no one knows this is happening except you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was a trade that I think even surprised the Knicks today, that Utah and Cleveland had restarted their talks, Scott, uh, really Tuesday morning uh, after our reporting on Monday night that the Knicks were signing R.J. Barrett, uh, and they would have to restart those Donovan Mitchell talks later, but this is one yeah, that lands here right at the start of uh, Labor Day weekend and in a lot of ways sort of marks the end of uh, NBA trade season, I think, is, as we've been following it here uh, from Kevin Durant, which didn't happen, to now Donovan Mitchell, which does with him landing with the Cavs. So give me a sense from Tuesday morning till now when you hit send on a tweet, like how would Cleveland get in there and make it happen? Kobe Altman, Cleveland's uh, president, was in New York on Monday night. He was watching Serena Williams at the U.S. Open, uh, saw reporting on uh, R.J. Barrett, was signing the extension with the Knicks, and the Knicks and Jazz talks had ended. So he picked up the phone on Tuesday morning. He called Justin Zanuck, the Jazz GM. They restarted a conversation that they'd been having last week, and Cleveland had pulled out on Donovan Mitchell on Friday. And even Cleveland thought it was probably going to end up being New York, but they got in there and Cleveland and the Jazz had that deal today. And Utah never called back to New York 
to give them a chance to top that Cavaliers offer. I think they felt they were negotiating in good faith with Cleveland, and they did the deal with Cleveland for the three unprotected first-round picks and, and some young players. So the, the last part of that I find to be particularly interesting in that Utah never reached back out to New York. So it wasn't mentioned in this video, but so the total trade sends uh, Lowry Markinen, Colin Sexton, and rookie swing Ochai Agbaji. <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm butchering your name. But it sent those three players along with three unprotected picks and two pick swaps, which of course is a pretty sizable haul. I mean, five picks in total for Donovan Mitchell seems to be about the going rate considering what Utah got for Rudy Gobert. Sexton then went on to sign a four-year extension in Utah. But the fascinating, the most fascinating part of this deal didn't come out until shortly until shortly thereafter. And I believe it was Shams who tweeted that the New York Knicks actually presented the better offer. I'm going to go and find the tweet now, but the, uh, oh, wait, hold on. Where is it? I believe the Knicks offer was RJ Barrett, um, it was R.J. Barrett, Mitchell Robinson, Obi Toppin, plus picks, which comparatively, compare, comparatively compared, obviously, comparatively to what they got from Cleveland, that is the better deal. That deal is significantly more enticing than what they got from Cleveland. I'm just trying to find the fucking tweet. This is like really frustrating again this is also just like poor preparation on my part not having not having it all ready to go but so it goes uh where are we uh fucking christ man New York had the assets Utah preferred, and the side seemed to be inching closer to a trade Sunday night and into Monday, but the Knicks balked on including Quentin Grimes in a trade with RJ to acquire Mitchell, sources said. So the Knicks' original trade that was set to include RJ, Mitch, and Obi Toppin was, I guess, I don't know if it was declined or rescinded, but this must have occurred early on in the process because Mitchell, Mitch Robinson later went on to sign an extension with New York, which would have drastically altered the, which would have drastically altered the, um, the basis of the deal because Utah would have had to account for all of that extra salary that they would have been bringing in. More surprisingly than Utah declining that offer from New York was New York even offering that trio of player because, for all intents and purposes, they seem to love R.J. Barrett. I mean, they also just went ahead and signed him. To an extension uh the same day that the news of donovan mitchell broke the knicks were officially inking rj barrett to a four-year extension i mean mitchell robinson is a great player that would have been as i already mentioned that would have been the best possible deal for donovan mitchell i think because you get the picks granted i think it was a one or two less than what they got from cleveland but you also have a decent core to continue to build around like no disrespect to Colin Sexton and Larry Markin, but that duo is not as good as RJ Barrett, Mitchell Robinson, and Obi Toppin. I feel that those three guys give you a more well-rounded base than what you currently have with Sexton and Markin. Not to say that I don't like Colin Sexton. I think he's a great player, but I think that ultimately Utah went with the Worst deal, not by much. I don't want to poo-poo. Um, I don't want to poo-poo their acquisition too badly, but most certainly not the best deal they had on the board. Clearly, but what everyone really cares about more than that is how does Donovan Mitchell fit on the Cleveland Cavaliers? And this trade blew everybody out of the water. Literally nuked ESPN 
because or ESPN and Woj literally nuked NBA Twitter because it was unexpected and this deal makes the Eastern Conference even more frightening and more of a gauntlet than it was before because you look at this Cavaliers team you have Darius Garland you have Jared Allen you have Donovan Mitchell you have Evan Mobley you have Karis LeVert coming off the bench potentially you have three all-stars in your starting lineup plus Evan Mobley who is probably going to go on to be an all-star within the next couple of years this team is absolutely stacked and what makes them even scarier is that Donovan Mitchell is a clear upgrade over Colin Sexton who already seemed to fit quite well alongside Darius Garland because Garland is more of the point guard you know everyone was we were all making jokes about how the Cavs basically have two guys who can't play point guard. They're both like 6'2". They don't have a lot of size. But Darius Garland took that criticism and emerged as a legitimately talented playmaker. And that was with Colin Sexton alongside him. Now he has Donovan Mitchell, who is a more polished scorer in every facet. Um, I mean, there's really nothing I can say about Donovan Mitchell, a dude who averaged 25 points a game, who can give you 30, 35, 40 who can hit the three at a reasonable rate, like 35, 36, 37%, someone who gets to the basket, someone who in his own in his own respect is also a quality playmaker. I mean, he was Utah's de facto facilitator, and he does have a above-average basketball IQ, and especially with the likes of Jared Allen, with Evan Mobley, just having an additional guy who can break up or who can make the offense a little bit more dynamic and now you have two guards who can penetrate you have two guards who can run pick and roll you have two guards who are capable of making high degree of difficulty passes to free up their guys for easy buckets and I do think that Donovan Mitchell is going to bolster their defense a little bit um it's of course tough for him to be an elite defender when he has to bear such a sizable offensive load but he has the size, at least in regards to his wingspan, and he's got the athleticism. He's incredibly explosive. I mean, it was just a great, great, great acquisition by Cleveland, who I feel is the clear winner in this deal. But what is even weirder is that Cleveland goes and they make and they are able to acquire Donovan Mitchell. And they make their team markedly better compared to last season. But they are still like the sixth or seventh best team in the conference. I think that is the, I think that's the part of this transaction that is kind of getting overlooked. And it's because like, again, we're still in shock. It's been almost a week and we're still in shock that Donovan Mitchell is a Cleveland Cavalier. But when you look at the talent level, in the East. I'm taking Boston, Philly, Boston, Philly, Brooklyn, Milwaukee, and Miami over Cleveland. You do also have the Chicago Bulls, although I don't know. They're probably going to get off to a rocky start because it also came out a few days ago that Lonzo Ball is going to miss uh, the season opener, and he's we don't know really when he's coming back after his... um off-season surgery or whenever the fuck he had the surgery. I can't remember. But fully healthy, I'm taking Chicago over them as well. I mean, the East is just so stacked this year. But also, Cleveland is now a legitimate... I'm hesitant to call them a legitimate contender because I do think that they're going to get beat in the second round or maybe even in the first round, depending on what matchup they draw. Because if you're going up against Boston, like... That's a team that is absolutely way ahead of Cleveland just in in every facet. But Cleveland, because they have this talent level, because all of their core players are going to come back a year older with an an extra year of work put in, um, anything can happen. I would not be surprised to see them go to the conference finals, nor would I be surprised to see them pull off an upset in the first round. Because you have such depth in the Eastern Conference. One of the like legitimate contenders, I'm talking like Boston, Milwaukee, Brooklyn, or Philly, one of them is going to go up against Cleveland in the first round. I mean, Miami too. 
one of those five teams is going to go up against Cleveland. I'm also forgetting about the Atlanta Hawks. I mean, the Atlanta Hawks are a team that is on the same level as Cleveland as well. But you have the five, the five, um, I guess, S-tier teams in the East, whom I just mentioned. One of them is going to go up against Cleveland. And I feel that any of them can get upset by Cleveland because it is the NBA playoffs, and that's not going to be a typical first-round matchup. If you're a one seed, you know, Cleveland could very well be the eighth seed in the East or the seventh seed in the East. You don't know. You also don't know about Charlotte. You don't know what the Hawks are going to look like. You don't know what Chicago is going to look like. So if Boston or Milwaukee or Brooklyn finishes atop the conference and they go ahead and they draw Cleveland in the first round, I mean, we saw how much of a pain in the ass it was for Brooklyn to go up against Cleveland this past year, let alone this revamped version of that team where everybody is healthy. So I don't think Cleveland makes it to the finals yet. You know, they they are still young and they will be together for the next couple of years. But, I mean, there's a reason this trade sent the timeline into a, a, a spiral, just like... It, and you knew it was legitimately warranted because folks weren't even really cracking jokes about Utah or about um, the Knicks. And usually whenever any piece of news drops that involves the Knicks losing out on a star player, the Knicks monopolize the conversation. Like the whole timeline is just them, is just the Knicks being shit on. But that wasn't the case with this trade. Everybody was talking about Donovan Mitchell in Cleveland. Everybody was talking about Donovan Mitchell and and Darius Garland in the backcourt. Everybody was talking about Mitchell, Garland, Allen, Evan Mobley, and rightfully so. Um, this is also just great for the league in general. You can there's nothing wrong with having all of these teams that are super dense with talent and also within, you know, a few games of each other. I think even though I don't think Cleveland is a contender, I think that from the first seed to the seventh seed in the East is only going to be separated by four or five games. You're going to have seeding being decided on the final day of on the final day of the regular season, like how it was with the Western Conference a few years ago. Although that was like more towards the bottom, this whole year, and it's going to start right away. It's going to be so weird to just see how drastically the standings change when each of the premier teams go on a losing streak because they're all going to there is none none of these teams are exempt from losing five six games in a row especially if the schedule is not especially if the schedule doesn't favor them like imagine if you're Brooklyn and you go on a road trip that has you travel to Boston and then Philly and then Cleveland and then Charlotte, and then Miami, and then Atlanta. Like, you're liable to get beat each of those nights. And that goes for any top team in the East. Like, I'm just glad that this worked out, and one of these teams clearly made out better than the other. But now we have an interesting, another interesting conversation to talk about, and that is, what does Utah do from here, and that's a rhetorical question. Everybody knows that Utah is going to, pardon me, everyone knows that Utah is now going to enter full rebuild mode. I mean, if it wasn't clear from them trading Rudy Gobert, it's clear now because both of their teams are gone. Uh, Stephen A is disgusted, of course he is, but now Utah is going to look to off hold to um offload the rest of their uh, veterans, I guess you could call them, on the team. Look at talk about guys like Mike Conley, Jordan Clarkson, um and Bojan Bogdanovic again. Also just trying to find the article just so I can have a properly sourced take, but that's next up. So, all three of those guys. Fortunately, for all three of those guys, I think maybe not at the beginning of the season, but 
around the trade down. Okay, I found I found an article. The Utah Jazz are engaged in trade discussions that involve Boyan Bogdanovich, Mike Conley, and Jordan Clarkson. Sources told the Athletics. Tony Jones, Utah traded three-time All-Star Donovan Mitchell on Thursday to the Cavs. The Jazz entered a complete rebuild after moving Mitchell and trading Rudy Gobert to Minnesota. The Lakers are interested in Bogdanovich, Conley, and Clarkson, but want to preserve cap space for next offseason. That was reportedly due to them wanting to go after Kyrie Irving. There's the hope that they can lure him from Brooklyn to LA um, by way of a max contract. And as we know, Kyrie did not sign a long-term extension quite yet. He picked up his player option, but that's ultimately the Lakers' plan. Utah currently has 17 guaranteed contracts. Conley and Bogdanovich at about 23 million and 20 million have the two highest salaries on the Jazz. Clarkson is slated to make 13 million during this season. All three of these guys get moved, 100%. I don't know when, I don't know where, but none of them will be on the Utah Jazz after the trade deadline. I'm looking at a team like Miami. Miami is someone who could definitely benefit from a little bit more scoring off the bench, i.e. somebody like Jordan Clarkson. I mean, you also can't you cannot have enough three-point shooters on any team, so... Boyan Bogdanovich. I mean, maybe he goes to the Clippers or somebody. I mean, maybe one of them gets traded to Denver or to Dallas, another team who could benefit from a little bit more spacing, especially after losing Jalen Brunson. Just a guy like Jordan Clarkson to come off the bench or maybe even start and be a secondary ball handler alongside Luka Doncic. I also would not be upset if Brooklyn found a way to bring Boyan Bogdanovich back back to the Nets. I loved him during his tenure here, albeit it was rather short, but he's also a super productive player in his own right. Again, a guy who can hit 38, 40% of his threes will have no problem finding work in today's NBA. And also keep in mind that they might not even have to hit the trading block. They might get bought out. They might get bought out closer to the postseason. That's a huge thing that bad teams do with their veterans so that way they can go and join a playoff team I think Wesley Matthews did that a few years ago and that allowed him to sign with the Milwaukee Bucks like this isn't that's not a foreign thing and that is also quite possible as well especially because like Utah already made out quite well in both of their deals for Gobert and Mitchell I mean they have a shitload of assets granted I don't know how we don't know how useful those draft picks are going to be. Another huge talking point in regards to the Knicks offer was that one would speculate that the Knicks draft picks, the Knicks draft picks would be better than Cleveland's. Um, probably not by much. I mean, the, even if Mitchell got sent to the Knicks, they're still, I don't know, mid first round, late first round. But like we're, we're, we're splitting hair, hairs. At this point, it's not going to be lottery picks regardless. You're looking at guys, you know, in the 20s, 25, 27 area, maybe a little higher, but ultimately, again, we're splitting hairs. But overall, if I had to grade the deal, I feel comfortable giving Cleveland. I think I have to give Cleveland an A. I don't want to give them an A plus. I don't believe in A pluses. But they, they knocked it out of the park. They added a all-NBA caliber player. And yes, they gave up a handful of picks. But how useful are those picks going to be to them anyway? And then also, they didn't have to give up really any of their core pieces. Like, they still have Darius Garland. They still have Evan Mobley. They still have Jared Allen. I mean, you could argue that Colin Sexton was part of the core. But... He was the le- he was the most expendable member of the core, and then Lowry Markkinen was kind of just falling out of uh, his time in Cleveland was coming to an end. Regardless, I mean, I just don't know if he's if he was fit to play there. So an easy A minus at least for Cleveland. For Utah, it gets a little squirrely. I don't want to be too critical of them because it's certainly not the worst deal in the world. I mean, any trade that you can swing where you get five picks, great. 
obviously three three picks outright and then two swaps. So when you can get five spots in the draft, it's a great deal. Great deal. The players, especially compared to what they missed out on with the Knicks, it's definitely clouds our judgment a little bit. But then again, it also comes down to your philosophy and how you would rather build a team. Would you rather build a team through the draft or would you rather build it through trades? Because Utah going with Cleveland proves that they would rather have the draft capital because also you can use those picks to leverage another trade. Granted, I don't know how easily that's going to happen. I mean, they could throw a pick in with Mike Conley's contract just to sweeten the deal a little bit because, of course, he is getting older and he's not the player he once was. He's not the all-defensive team guy that he used to be. But I think, you know, a C-plus to a B-minus is an appropriate trade or is an appropriate grade because it's about what you would expect for Donovan Mitchell. Like, they got fair market value for their star player. So, can't really argue with... um. I can't really, you know, I can't talk too much shit. I definitely could talk more, but that's not really, that's not really what I'm trying to do. I'm not That's really not what I'm trying to do around these parts. So as I already mentioned, the new cycle has been kind of slow. So I'm really just going to try my best to find, to scrounge up some content for you guys. And I did touch on this earlier, but Lonzo Ball will not be present or is unlikely to be present for the start of the season. Chicago's, Chicago Bulls guard Lonzo Ball is expected to miss camp and is considered doubtful for the beginning of the regular season due to persistent pain in his left knee, sources told ESPN's Jamal Collier and Ramona Shelburne. Ball underwent arthroscopic surgery in January. The Bulls initially slated a recovery timeline of six to eight weeks for Ball for Ball, but shut him down in April because of discomfort from the procedure. He appeared in a career-low 35 games this past year. The 24-year-old continued to feel pain while spending the summer rehabbing in L.A. Ball is reportedly set to arrive in Chicago next week for further evaluation. He's missed 98 contests over five seasons due to lower body injuries. Chicago owned a 27-13 and record ahead of Ball's last game in January. However, the Bulls won just 19 of their final 42 regular season games, dropping them down to sixth where they eventually lost to Milwaukee. The former Bruin averaged 13 points, about five and a half boards, and five assists in his first season in Chicago. He, of course, got acquired via a sign-in trade that was later, I believe, investigated for tampering, which didn't go anywhere because tampering accusations never go anywhere. But this is absolutely crushing for Chicago. I didn't touch on it really in-depth when talking about Cleveland because that was a segment about the Cavs, obviously. But... Lonzo Ball, over the last couple of years, has really flourished, and it's because there is no longer an immense amount of pressure on him to be this superstar point guard, which is what everyone thought he was going to be coming out of UCLA. Of course, when you're drafted high lottery, that's what everybody expects of you, but Ball's game never really, it was never going to translate to that. In terms of being a scorer or a shot creator, he's not that great. I mean, the numbers show it. He's never been good at getting buckets for himself. I mean, he's been decent. He can get to the paint. He's got great size. And getting to the paint is crucial because then it allows him to drive and kick. But he's not on the tier of even somebody like Colin Sexton or Darius Garland or other guys that came out around the same time as him. But his rebounding, his defense, and his passing were the insurance, or it wasn't the insurance, it ensured that he was always going to contribute to meaningful basketball if he landed in the right situation. The Lakers weren't really the right situation for him. He lands in Chicago alongside DeMar DeRozan, Zach Levine, Nikola Vucevic, where he doesn't have to worry about scoring. And he can do what he does best, facilitate play defense, and more recently, space the floor, which is, of course, a huge part of Lonzo's increased um, necessity towards Chicago being a contender. 
they need shooters, especially since DeMar DeRozan does have a sizable does have a sizable place in the offense. Nikola Vucevic as well. Two guys that don't really play on the three-point line get a lot of their buckets or basically the or basically all of their buckets in the mid-range, in the post, below the free throw line. You need that floor spacing. Zach Levine gives it to them. Alex Caruso gives it to them when healthy as well. Caruso, of course, was also hurt throughout last year, which contributed to Chicago's downfall. But let's not forget, guys, before Lonzo Ball got hurt, the best team in the league was the Chicago Bulls. Like, it was not a fluke. They were legitimately contenders. They were making the case for themselves. They were beating the brakes off of everybody. They were going shot for shot with the likes of Brooklyn, with the likes of Milwaukee. And then all it takes is just a little bit of unluckiness. And unfortunately, it came in the way of the injury bug. Zach Levine, I believe, got hurt as well. Missed a couple of weeks. Alex Caruso, I already mentioned. Lonzo Ball, of course. And like Patrick Williams as well, who came back later in the season. It sucks when good players miss time. It really does. And also, not even just good players, but players who contribute to elite teams. Guys like Lonzo Ball, who was, as I already mentioned, a huge piece of Chicago's identity and also what helped make their offense so unique and so dynamic. And losing that, Evidenced by their, what is it, like it was 19-23, and 23, their 19-23 and 23 record over the final half of the season. There's no replacing that. There's no replacing a guy like Lonzo Ball or a guy who's putting up Lonzo Ball numbers on both ends of the floor. So this is just another shitty, this is just another shitty um, roll, of the, roll of the dice for Chicago. I hope that this isn't persistent. I God, I just, I hope and pray that Lonzo comes back healthy with no further setbacks, with no, you know, no, yeah, I guess just no further setbacks. I'm trying to figure out what other fucking word I want to say, but unfortunately, that's how it goes sometimes, and this is another reason why I think the, um, the Cavs adding Donovan Mitchell was also kind of hyped up, because if Chicago does continue to like crumble and you know Miami didn't really look that strong in the postseason I mean they, their flaws are super noticeable Miami's are so you take away those two teams and then of course we still have to see what happens with Atlanta but you know Cleveland could fall as low as seven but there is a world in where they finish like fourth or fifth in the East, especially because we don't know what's going to happen with the Brooklyn Nets. God, I fucking, oh man, if they continue to have injury problems, I might just shoot myself into the sun. I swear to God, I don't think I'll be able to deal with it. But there is a lot of uncertainty with all of the other teams in the East as well. And the pressure is going to be, it's going to be even more, it's going to be even more tense because you're going to have to be perfect like almost every night. Almost every night. There are very few gimme games in the Eastern Conference this year. And I mean in the Western Conference too. But of course the West isn't as, you know, top to bottom good as the East is. It's almost going to be like a football season or like, you know, a um, a motorsports season where you have to be on your P's and Q's every day. Like you can't get away with mental lapses against Cleveland anymore. You can't get away with mental lapses against the Charlotte Hornets. Like, you got to come ready to play every night. And it's hard to do that for 82 games. So it's also going to be interesting to see, like, how teams pick and choose how they want to rest their superstars, what load management is going to look like as well, because you're you're not going to have that luxury. You're not going to have the luxury of being able to rest Tatum or KD or Kyrie or Giannis unless you're beating the shit out of somebody in the fourth quarter, which is typically what happens with uh, the Milwaukee Bucks, at least. So, um, again, I don't think I can stress my excitement for this upcoming NBA season. It really is going to be a... There are going to be so many fireworks, and now that NBA League Pass has been cut down to 100 bucks, 
I think it, it's well worth it just to watch the six or so teams in the Eastern Conference. Uh, man, I'm trying to. I'm really just trying to see where I can take it from here. Oh, this is. Oh, this is good for uh for all of you football pe- for all you football fans out there. So the the quarterback situation in Pittsburgh has been very fascinating to me. Not because I give a shit about the Steelers or give a shit about their success, but because when you're drafting your fantasy team, there are a lot of outstanding receivers who just don't have good quarterbacks. The quarterback play is very sussy. I'm looking at Amon Ross St. Brown in Detroit with Jared Goff and most notably literally any receiver on the Pittsburgh Steelers, whether it's Pat Freiermuth, um, Deontay Johnson in particular, Chase Claypool as well, two guys who, you know, just in a vacuum are very talented. But, like, you have Mitch Trubisky and Kenny Pickett battling for your quarterback spot, which really doesn't bode well, bode well for your hopes of having, like, a productive season. But then again, if you're that talented, like, you're going to figure out a way to make plays. But I guess it was just reported today that Mitch Trubisky, will be the starter for the Pittsburgh Steelers. The Steelers will start Mitch The Steelers will start Mitch Trubisky at quarterback in week 1 against the Bengals said head coach Mike Tomlin on Tuesday. Meanwhile, the team listed rookie Kenny Pickett as the number 2 quarterback over racist Rudolph in an updated death chart. Quote, we're really comfortable with what Mitch has shown us, said Tomlin according to Ian Rappaport of NFL Network. I'm not surprised that Mason Rudolph is at, is on the bottom of the, of the death chart because I just have really not seen any anything redeemable about him so far. Kenny Pickett also being a rookie, it is so difficult for even an elite college quarterback to transition into the NFL. It simply does not happen that regularly. Like I mean, you have guys like Dak Prescott. I think Baker Mayfield had a pretty decent rookie season as well, but those are also by rookie standards. It's it is the hardest position in sports probably to transition to from college into the pros. And Mitch Trubisky, although he's, you know, mid, there's nothing wrong with being mid. Like it's okay to be mid. If if having to pick between mid and bad or mid, bad and questionable, you might be tempted to pick mid, especially because the Pittsburgh Steelers are, like, relatively decent. I mean, they got weapons, dog. They got Najee Harris. I already mentioned Deontay Thomas. Deontay Thomas. Deontay Johnson and Chase Claypool. They got playmakers on defense as well with TJ Watt and Minka Fitzpatrick. Like, this is a team that's on the cusp of, like, challenging to play spoiler or potentially even sneaking into the playoffs. I don't really know about that, but, like, a team that is going to hover around 500 or so. Jabitsky's place as the starter appeared secure after his teammates named him one of the Steelers' five co-captains and he was placed above the depth chart. The 2017 number over number two overall pick is looking to rejuvenate his career after failing to establish himself as the Bears' franchise quarterback. Trubitsky signed with the Steelers as a free agent this offseason after spending a year as Josh Allen's backup in Buffalo. Tomlin allowed the three quarterbacks to compete during the offseason and training camp. While the rookie did enough to supplant Rudolph as the primary backup, Trubitsky was the clear number one. I'm really pleased with the growth and development of Kenny. That's why he's listed as QB2. Trubitsky has thrown for 10,609 yards and 64 touchdowns with only 39 interceptions during four seasons in Chicago. Again, not terrible numbers. Just not numbers that you associate with the number two overall pick. Like, okay, Mitch Trubisky is mid. He's mid-Mitch, and that's fine. But, like, I found myself second-guessing guys like Deontay Johnson and Tyreek Hill in fantasy because, like, how much can they do? Well, at least in Ty's case, how much can he do with Tua? Like, Tua is also a decent quarterback, but... What's the adjustment going to be like from going from Patrick Mahomes to Tua Tagovailoa? 
with Deontay Johnson, it's like, okay, he could either be catching passes from a guy who is decent or a guy who just fucking sucks. And that's Mason Rudolph. Now, of course, obviously, there was everything that happened last year, and Deontay Johnson still emerged as a good enough player to even warrant serious consideration in fantasy. But this, ladies and gentlemen, I wonder if it is the perfect way to transition into fantasy football this year. So, me and my hometown friends do fantasy football league every season, and it is always a shit show. And I say this because we have 12 people in this league. It is a 12-team league. This year, full PPR, obviously. If you don't play full PPR in fantasy, you're a fed. You are the feds. You are the police. Always play full PPR. It's a full PPR, 12-team league. This year, we changed it. We went two receivers, two running backs, Plus a, plus a flex. We were trying to petition for in for an individual defensive player, but that bid fell short because the commissioner did not want to do that. Uh, down from three wide receiver, two running backs, because we've been doing three wideouts for the last couple of years, and it's just it's literally impossible to field three three good wide receivers in a twelve man league. The waiver wire is dry literally all year long. It is impossible to find anybody good off the waiver wire. So we thought that maybe this would change it. So I picked third overall. Now I'm so much of a dumbass that I thought I was ninth overall. Now every year we do our draft order by way of picking numbers. The number system, it's classic, it's easy, but the commissioner doesn't pick nor does the defending champion. So I did not get to pick this year. So the final two picks come around and it was stuck between third and ninth. I my preference is to be a late round drafty. Just because when you're doing snake, you can get two elite players back to back. And then the drop off isn't so large. Like we're talking about drafting like Alvin Kamara, and Travis Kelsey back-to-back, something like that. The higher up you go in the draft, the more time there is in between your picks, obviously, and that is so detrimental in the early rounds that it's almost not worth it, especially if you're picking first overall. Like, my fiance picked first overall this year. She got Jonathan Taylor, and then, like, by the next time she got to pick at the end of the second round, all the good players are gone. So... This is my team. Oh, fuck. I forgot to... Quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. Wide receivers are C.D. Lamb and Hunter Renfro. Running backs are Austin Eckler and Josh Jacobs. Tight end, Travis Kelsey. And then my flex, as of right now, is Cordero Patterson. Um, On the bench, I have Devin Singletary, Tyler Lockett, DJ Shark, Jameis Winston, Mark Ingram, and Rob Gronkowski, which I did just for the meme every year because me and my friends are all just fucking brain dead. Every year, there is at least one guy who drafts a player who's either inactive or retired. And most of the time, it happens because they didn't realize. Like, I had a one of, one of our friends drafted Marshawn Lynch one year. We also had a friend draft DeAndre Hopkins way too early. Like, there was, there was a preposterous amount of CTE going on in this draft. I don't know why everyone was just so dumbed down compared to previous years. So I continued the tradition by drafting Rob Gronkowski in the final round. I mean, it was the 15th round. I'm stuck between picking him and like the fucking third string tight end on the Seattle Seahawks. So I might as well just get some fucking, I might as well just get some, some laughs out of it. So Yahoo thought that this team was the best team in the draft. It rated me as number one so of course I had to go around and start loading but uh, I definitely benefited off of the idiocy of my friends so we're just gonna I'm just gonna run you through the first couple of rounds of the draft here so the first three picks unsurprisingly Jonathan Taylor Christian McCaffrey and Austin Eckler who of course I picked third overall 
and who was the basis of my team name, Austin Eckler and Goldmember. I think I think I think it's a good team name, and it's one of the few team names I've ever had that wasn't like a sexual innuendo. So I'm pretty I'm pretty proud of myself for coming up with some good clean humor on this one. And then after that, Dalvin Cook and Cooper Cup, kind of par for the course. And this is where the CTE kicked in. My one friend, who shall remain nameless, I will not be dropping the names of any of my friends. Um, I guess if I do post this, I'm gonna have to blur out all the fucking all the names because some of them, some of their names are on there. But he drafted Joe Mixon, sixth overall. It was at that point that we knew. You know what? I'm just gonna go full screen so that way I don't have to fucking. That way I don't have to blur out anybody's name. Joe Mixon, sixth overall. Joe Mixon over Justin Jefferson. Even Jamar Chase, dog. If you took Jamar Chase sixth overall, I wouldn't hate it. But you're picking Joe Mixon over Justin Jefferson and Najee Harris and Derrick Henry. That was when the CTE first kicked in. That's when we knew. That it was a wrap. It was a wrap skis. I it was at that point, I took control. And I was like, this is it. I, I really I need to focus. I need to not fuck around for a little bit because this is the year that I will draft the best team. I've had shitty luck with drafts in the past, and I've only gotten these two titles because of luck, really. So we go into the second round, Aaron Jones. Alvin Kamara, Aaron Jones, Kamara, Leonard Fournette, Saquon Barkley, Devontae Adams, Javante Williams, Nick Chubb, um, James Conner, Zeke, and then I was able to draft Travis Kelsey with pick 10 in the second round. I don't know how, I don't know how it happened, but I'm I'm superstitious. I won titles. I won a title in 2019. With Travis Kelsey, I won a title in 2021 with Travis Kelsey. I would have won a title in 2020, but I got fucked over because Yahoo's defensive scoring system is so fucking stupid. And the final game of um, the first round of playoffs, it was Baltimore-Cleveland on, I think, Monday night. It was I think it was Monday night. It was either Sunday night or Monday night. And this was the shootout. This was the shootout between Baker and... Um, and Lamar, and of course, as you know, if you do Yahoo's, if you do Yahoo standard scoring, your defense loses points when they surrender in when they surrender X amount of points. I didn't realize that it got capped at 35. Once a defense has allowed 35 points, they will no longer be deducted. So they hung. The final score of the game was like 45-42, and I lost by less than a fucking point. Because Yahoo doesn't take off additional points beyond 35. Whatever, I'm starting to ramble here. I'm going to get really fucking pissed off if I keep talking about it. So, next round. Round three. I This is where it got a little weird for me. Because round three, it's like too early to take a quarterback. It Right? Too early to take a quarterback. My fiance took Josh Allen 12th overall in the second round. Which I, we were roasting her for that as well because that's insanely high to take Josh Allen, right? Over Ty Hill, CeeDee Lamb, Keenan Allen, like all of like that's who you should have been drafting. So I'm in the third round. Not only that, I'm early third round. Okay. I'm third pick of the third round. So too early to take Mahomes or Justin Herbert, for example. But the level of, you know, flex player, I guess will be the easy will be the umbrella term isn't as high as it was in the early round. I mean, you still have, like, you still got demons out there. Don't get it twisted, but, like, Ty Hill, Mike Evans. I wound up going with C.D. Lamb. I was stuck between C.D. Lamb and Debo Samuel, and I wound up going with C.D. because I think that Dak Prescott is a great quarterback. As much as I hate the Cowboys, he's absolutely incredible at the position, and I felt that he was the safer pick, especially compared to Debo because especially compared to Debo, because we don't know what the 49ers situation is going to look like. Of course, there's also Keenan Allen and Mike Williams, but remember, guys, I have Austin Eckler. 
And I'm not trying to overload my bye weeks with players from the same team. Of course, I wound up fucking myself over anyway because I loaded up my bye weeks and everyone's going to be out for week eight, which is awesome. But I wound up going with C.D. Lamb. So then round four, you know, who, who am I looking at? I'm looking at Deontay Johnson, looking at Terry McLaurin, Allen Robinson. I, I would love to get Allen Robinson in any league. And then end of the fourth round, I'm like, it's time. It's time to take Patrick Mahomes. So I took Patrick Mahomes again, knowing him and Travis Kelsey have obviously the same bye week. But with the current situation with the Chiefs playmakers, Travis Kelsey, who has always been Mahomes' safety blanket, is going to be even more of that role now because I don't think that the Chiefs will be as effective going downfield as they have been in the past, okay? They're not going to be able to take as many shots downfield because they don't have Tyreek Hill. That's not to say that I think Juju sucks, but even Juju at his best is at least a tier below Tyreek Hill. So I feel like they're going to resort to a lot of short to mid routes, slants, hooks, um, short posts, screens, stuff like that. And Travis Kelsey is going to excel in that role because he's Travis fucking Kelsey. He's the best he's the best tight end in the league right now and he will be the beneficiary of Mahomes having to adjust his style of play. I do also think that, you know, that kind of approach will make Mahomes a more it's it's hard to say a more effective quarterback cuz he's already an MVP, he's already an MVP winner and a Super Bowl champion, but also him being able to like have to be more of a game manager, I think will work wonders for him, at least when it comes to reducing just like the the turnovers that just make you shake your head, like the mistakes that young players typically make. So from this point on, the caliber of player really begins to fall off. Again, this is a 12 man. So I'm at round five and I'm already like, I don't like what I'm seeing here. I have a tight end, so I don't need Waller. I don't need George Kittle. Um, DK Metcalf, it's still too early to take him, I felt, because of, again, just his quarterback situation as well. That's another team who we don't know what their quarterback situation is going to look like and how that's going to hamper their wide receivers. So I took a gamble in back-to-back rounds. I took Josh Jacobs and Hunter Renfro. Okay, I am very high on the Raiders offense this year. I think that Derek Carr is going to absolutely fucking pop off. I think that Devontae Adams, I said this in the group chat last night and I kind of got roasted for it, but like I would not be surprised if Devontae Adams won the triple crown this year just because Derek Carr is already good for like 4,000 yards at the minimum. And he threw for, pardon me, and he threw for 4,800 last year with Hunter Renfro as his number one. Okay, so that's why I was high on Hunter Renfro. Also because Hunter, with the addition of Tay Adams, will see more single coverage. He's not the number one anymore, so teams aren't going to overload him. I think he's really going to eat. I mean, even if he's just like a reception machine, I wouldn't take, you know, I'd take 10 receptions for 70 yards. That's 17 points. Like, who wouldn't take that production from your number two receiver in fantasy? So, I also use this rationale to take a little bit of a gamble on Josh Jacobs because with all of this lethality in the passing game, it's bound to open up some running lanes for Josh Jacobs. And I think that Josh Jacobs is a good running back. Okay. Um, You know, he's kind of fallen off recently, so I am taking a risk in that regard, but will he get back to form? I think that if he were to, this would be the time to do it. And then if he doesn't, I at least have other running backs that I can put in place of him, like Cordero Cordero Patterson. Devin Singletary, kind of a sus pick, but also very similar to Josh Jacobs. I feel like, you know, maybe that's off base because, again, I'm not really a football guy. But, you know, for fantasy, I feel like I kind of have, I feel like I have an idea of what I'm talking about. And then, again, as I already mentioned, I drafted Devin Singletary. I then went with 
Cordero, Cordero Patterson, who I just mentioned, those are, those are going to be like, that's going to be my rotation of backs throughout the year. You know, Austin Eckler is clearly, he's not going anywhere. Okay. He's not going anywhere, but Singletary, Jacobs, Patterson, guys who you're allowed to have flexibility with, and it wouldn't be egregious for you to start one over the other. And then, you know, we're already at round nine. So it's getting a little weird. We're getting close to auto draft time. But, you know, I'm not one of those guys who likes to check out after, you know, getting all my good position players. My strategy is get your, you know, seven position guys, or I guess it would be eight or nine, and then do your defense and your kicker in rounds 10 and 11 or 11 and 12, and then mail it in for the final rounds. So that's just, that's how I look at it. Um, in round nine, I wound up going with Tyler Lockett, a very low risk, high reward pick. I feel like, especially in the ninth round. And again, I already have CD Lamb. Admittedly, my receivers are kind of weak, but they are high upside receivers. Like no one's going to deny that. You have CD Lamb, who's going to get a bolt, who's going to get a majority of the targets now that Amari Cooper's gone. Um, Hunter Renfro again, also high upside. So round 10, I went with the Rams defense, and then in round 11, I went with DJ Shark, another guy who could potentially have a little bit of a revival because Jared Goff doesn't really suck, but he's also not the best, and I mean, DJ Shark did pop off a couple of years ago, so there is the opportunity for that to be rekindled, and then I went with Matt Gay in round 12, and then I, again, as I already mentioned, Melded in. Jameis Winston as my backup QB just for the memes. Rob Gronkowski in round 15 for the memes. And then Mark Ingram in round 14 because there was nobody else for me to go with. So that's my team, folks. Now, everyone has their own philosophies when it comes to drafting in fantasy football. I am of the belief that if you have your first five picks if your first five picks are going to give you anywhere from 15 to 30 points a game you're good or even if it if you average 20 okay let's say if your five picks average out giving you 20 points each game you're already at 100 you're already at 100 not counting your um not counting your flex not counting your defense, not counting your kicker, and then also one, two, three. Like, if you can get 100 points essentially guaranteed from your first five picks, I think you're, I think you're good. And that's kind of what I'm looking at with Mahomes, with Eckler, with C.D. Lamb, with Travis Kelsey. That's only four, but also keep in mind the almost like inflated point totals you can get with Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey. Like, combined, those two can give you, they can realistically give you like 45, 50 points a week. And then C.D. Lamb might give you 18. You might get, you know, 25 from Austin Eckler. Like, that's just, that's just my rationale. And then, as I already mentioned, when it comes to doing your bench lots, just guys who, low risk, low risk, high reward. I personally try to find players whom I think are talented on their own as opposed to players who fit well in their current system. I know that's kind of like, I know that's kind of backwards, but you have to remember that fantasy football, you can't analyze it the same way that you do real football because in real football, it doesn't matter if a player is talented in his own right or not. If he's talented in the system, that's what you want because the team is going to win games. In fantasy, you want the individual player to excel because that's what's going to help you win. So that's why I feel confident in going for someone like Tyler Lockett, for example, or Cord Cord Corderell Patterson. I still, I love, yeah, Corderell or Corderell Patterson because he popped off. Atlanta has no weapons this year outside of um what the fuck is his name Kyle Pitts Calvin Ridley of course got his ass cheeks clapped for doing a little bit of gambling which fucking sucks and Patterson also has a lot of versatility as well so I think I drafted a 
decent team. I don't want to toot my horn, but this is probably this is this might be the actually no, I don't want to say it's the best team I've ever drafted. The team I had in 2020 either 2020 or 2019, I think. Last year my team wasn't really that great, but I got hard carried. I got hard carried by Mark Andrews, Devontae Adams, and Leonard Fournette. And also Patrick Mahomes. So like that's what I'm talking about. If you if your team is front heavy with guys who put up a lot of points regardless, then you're set up for a good draft. So I think that's gonna do it. I think that's gonna do it for today. As always, thank you guys so much for coming to hang out with me today. Everything I'm associated with will be linked somewhere down below. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, subscribe to the YouTube channel, follow me on Twitch. I go live every now and again on there. Um, if you're listening to this on a podcasting platform, leave a like, leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe, tell a friend about it. If you like to tell a friend about it, if you didn't like it, and as always, thank you guys again, and I'll catch y'all next week.